Welcome back to Geek Warning, everybody. Kaylee Fretz. It's the week of March 28th. We've got a whole bunch of fantastic tech news to talk about with you all today. We're going to talk Taipei Cycle Show. We're going to talk about Ronan's favorite topic in the whole world, which is what if there was no tech at all? We're going to talk about spec bikes, basically, is what I'm saying. There's a new... There's a new bike from Specialized that uh, I think it needs more zerts personally. So we'll get into that in a little bit. We've got some news from Chris King. We've got some stuff that's on our minds and over the heads of our families. And joining me here today to talk about all of this, Dave Rome. How are you, Dave? I'm well. I'm well. Hello. Good morning. Good evening. And Ronan McLovin. How are you, man? I'm good. Thank you. Let's kick off today with a little bit of housekeeping, Dave. Uh, I think that, frankly, you, as a shill for SRAM, need yeah. to defend yourself. I do. I mean, as much as I like my new Mercedes, uh, <laughs> I think it's still important to to say that my opinions are my own. Uh, and and really, what, what this is, is just, uh, I guess... Because I was positive about the new SRAM, and I should know better than to be positive about a new product. But uh, how dare you? <laughs> how dare I? Um, but yeah, I guess some people are, are skeptical over, I guess, our agenda. And yeah, I mean, the whole business mission of us is to be independent. And occasionally we will be positive about new things when they deserve to have positivity around them. And I think it's just important to say that we, uh, you know, we're, our job is to give uh, an opinion based on a background of knowledge and information. And that opinion might not always align with your opinion. Uh, and it's good to have opinions of others and to potentially take it on board of, of people that have used those products. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's just something I wanted to get off my chest. Uh, I think the other thing that, is important to to remember um, is that continuous negativity doesn't uh, doesn't equate to credibility. So um, yeah, and I think that's something that the internet has become quite uh, can be quite a negative place about, uh, uh, and especially on on YouTube, the ones that are the most negative seem to be the most credible. And I, and I would argue that that's not necessarily always the case. Um, that you know, consistently shitting on things is doesn't necessarily mean that you're um that that that's more credible than someone that can can explain why a product is good uh or when it's bad so yeah we will we will call out products when they're bad we will call out negatives in products when they when they exist as as I did on that tram stuff uh but at the same time if we genuinely love something and we genuinely think it's a step forward uh or we think it's the way the industry's going we we're, we're going to tell you Dave I don't know how to break this to you gently so I'm just going to go ahead mm. and say it but yeah. We can't have conspiracy theories if we don't have negativity on the internet. So, um, <laughs> it's <all> true. <laughs> there, there's just no other way of saying that. So, just as so long as you know that. Uh, the other thing that you kind of skipped across there was, uh, and the reason I'm sort of liking your opinion on on this on on that particular review was actually you had the stuff in your hands, which is kind of a a, a big deal. Also, uh, so the opinion that you had was formed in with writing this this new group set. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I guess, yeah, the, the one argument that I guess most people pointed to as to why the product was a design failure was, was based on a, a YouTuber who hadn't actually held the product in their hand and hadn't worked on it. Uh, and they've since come out with a corrections video. So it's, 
uh, yeah, I think that's it's just something to keep in mind that we're here trying to do the best job we can. And uh, yeah, you know, not everyone's going to agree with our opinions, but uh, they are honest. They're our honest opinions. Stop being mean to Dave, internet. Yeah, that was fine. That was fine. I kid. You can I be kid. mean. I don't mind. I don't mind. Like, yeah, if you if you truly don't agree with my opinion, let me know. Um, it's I'm happy to take that on board as well. So. well I, I actually, like, I think that this is an interesting topic because, I mean, we get these sort of big launches. There's usually a couple a year, right? There's, you know, anything, anything big from SRAM, anything big from Shimano, anything hmm. big from some of the big bike brands. And there is this funny tendency, as you said, Dave, to sort of equate negativity with authenticity or negativity with credibility. And mm. I think that, that that it's an easy trap to fall into. In fact, I, I think back to like my early days as a tech editor, sort of, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, and some of the things that I wrote for Velenews back then. And I think I actually fell in that trap early on. And, and and you, in an effort to kind of like prove yourself yeah. and prove to the audience that you're not a shill, yeah. you end up just kind of hating things just for the sake of hating things. And mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, it's just this, it's a funny, well, here's the thing is I think it's, it's a result of this trust gap between the audience and endemic media that we've talked about a number of times and is sort of a big part of the, it's a big part of the problem that we're trying to solve at Escape Collective is we're trying to close that trust gap by essentially ensuring you that our opinions are not purchased, right? Uh, and I can yeah. say 100% they're not purchased right now because I've said this elsewhere. We haven't taken a single ad dollar from anywhere in the industry. Uh, hmm. And I think it's basically it's, – it's kind of structural, right? Like people – the you can't really blame the audience for this uh, – for, for seeing negativity and, and authenticity as, as the same thing, because for so long, everything's been so positive. I mean, how many yeah. reviews out there are four, four out of five stars, you know, four paragraphs long, uh, just garbage, garbage content, total nonsense, not helpful in any way to the end consumer. And that stuff is rife in the bike world. And that is essentially now kind of the result of that, is this uh this 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 sort of negativity ruling the roost kind of thing yeah um, yeah so anyway I, I we don't want to spend too much time on this but i i thought it was worth it was worth bringing up not to defend your honor dave i don't feel like that is actually necessary i don't think anyone out yeah there i don't actually, have any <laughs> actually yeah. I, I was gonna say i don't think anyone actually out there actually thinks that you know your opinion was purchased in some way maybe they do i don't know but yeah. uh that's a ridiculous thing to think, but it's more that it's just a very, from a, from a, like a 10,000 foot view, just looking down at like why these things happen and why audiences have the reactions that they do. And like, those are the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and I find it fascinating. And I, and I, I genuinely hope that what we're doing here, uh, I, I hope it can start to solve it. Right. Like that's part of the idea. Yeah. That's part of the, part of the mission. Yeah, and yeah, it'll take time, but yeah, certainly there there will be a mix of positivity amongst the negativity. We we can't and we won't always be negative because the bike industry does from time to time pump out stuff that is a a genuine improvement. So, uh yeah. Expect a mix. Things that are good are still good. Uh 
Well, let's stop talking about ourselves. Uh, we spent enough time, enough time talking about ourselves. Uh, I will. I will end that segment with uh, one hundred and fifty dollars chains are an insult cyclists all over the world and i hate it so there you so, go there's there's our bit of neg- <laughs> negativity so that was that, that was going to be for on my mind this week is oh. uh, i've come around having seen the australian pricing on that chain oh. and how it compares to shimano and campagnolo i have come around to changing my mind because i kind of defended it last week yep. saying it's very durable and while there's truth to that um i've mainly come around to the fact that at nearly two and a half times the price of a 12-speed Durace chain uh, in at, in an Australian retail sense, like from an Australian consumer point of view, uh, it's absurdly overpriced. There we go, Dave. So, All, yeah. see, see how easy that is? See how easy? Yeah. Just let the hate flow. Uh, yeah. I think it's it's it's, yeah. it's much easier that way if we just if we just decide that everything sucks and yeah. and go with that. But yeah. Yeah. For the record, I did call that out in my review. I said the, you know, as a drivetrain, it's cheaper than the old one, but as replacement wear parts is, is that's where they've raised the prices. So I did call it out. So we're just, uh, it's just dawning on me how, how much. Yeah. It's, it's expensive. It's absurd. <laughs> chase. Yeah. It's an absurdity. Like, could you just laugh at it? I guess. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's a completely r- ridiculous thing. Anyway, I'm moving us on from this particular right, topic. Let's go on. We're moving on. Very sad news, which is the founder of DeRosa, Mr. DeRosa himself, passed away. Uh, I think it was over the weekend. He was 89 years old. Absolute legend of frame building, built frames for Eddie Merckx and many other huge names in bike racing history. Uh, and, you know, that brand DeRosa has, has definitely it's been sort of passed around a little bit in recent years, but still exists. And just a, a sad, sad thing that somebody who, who kind of defined the racing bicycle for a couple decades there, or helped define the racing bicycle for a couple decades there, is no longer with us. So, yeah, to, to friends and family and anybody who rides a DeRosa, uh, we're very sorry today. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that the the company will continue under um, Hugo's sons, who are apparently have been at the helm of that company since the 70s, so still remains in the family. Which is fantastic. Let's move on to the Taipei Cycle Show. So this just went down, obviously, in Taipei. Dave, you have had some folks send over some interesting things. We should say we weren't there. Uh, yeah. We weren't really a company uh, fast enough to, to get anybody to the Taipei Cycle Show. But no. you, we've had some, some sneaky moles looking around at the Cycle Show. What have they dug up? Yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff. So I mean, Taipei Cycle Show. It's it's often more, uh, I'd say, more at the the manufacturers' end of interest. Uh, you get a lot of manufacturers or distributors. You get a lot of like um, white label kind of generic brands, general manufacturers that are that are willing to put your brand name onto their product. Uh, so it's often it's often a, a lot of walking around a huge show with a lot of interesting products that look familiar from other brands but with the without that brand on it uh but amongst all that you do also get some pretty big brands that are there showing off their their latest and greatest stuff so uh yeah amongst that uh as actually seen on pink bike uh fsa have uh new headsets which uh they yeah they've basically got this this huge range of various different headsets for uh internal cable routing 
but they've also done some headsets for for mountain bikes with like reach adjustment, which is something we've seen uh, in the downhill world done before. Normally with custom headsets using like custom Chris King headsets and a few other bits and pieces. Uh, so you can actually adjust the reach of your frame, um, assuming you have a large enough head tube to to use such a he- uh, headset in. Uh, there's damping headsets, which uh, is a similar idea to like the Visco set that we've seen from Cane Creek before. Uh, and they've even got like a self-centering headset where the, it basically brings the handlebars back to center. Um, so that's that one's really designed around like a cargo bike use. But there's just a lot of interesting developments in the in the headset world and FSA seems to be uh yeah really really pushing forward in in a big way. They've even got uh sort of uh solutions for some of the more common um integrated headset designs from like Trek and uh I'm struggling to remember others at the moment. But yeah, the the frames that are sort of using their their own integrated top caps that sit in line with um aerodynamically shaped top tubes. Uh FSA are starting to to offer a, a range of of those as well. So there's a lot of headsets happening. Uh, there's perhaps the biggest news from the mountain bike side of things was TRP released a, a 12 speed mechanical drivetrain, which is looks pretty cool actually. Wasn't it on uh, the same day as the SRAM stuff? Yep. Oops. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I think oops, maybe maybe some coincidence in it, maybe maybe not, but uh, yeah, I mean it coincides with the start of the the Type A cycle show, so. Yeah, the the drivetrain it's got a lot of uh, quite neat features around it. It uses a, a KMC chain, which is quite cool, which opens them up to I guess easier equipment spec on on bikes. Uh, it's using the front chain ring is is licensed from MRP, uh, but yeah, it's otherwise it's everything else is made by them. So TRP uh, is actually the the sort of performance division the premium division of Tektro who make a lot of brakes uh most a lot sorry not most but i'd say a good portion of the brakes in the market are, are out of the house of Tektro and uh yeah it's it's an interesting product this it's yeah it's 10 to 52 tooth cassette it uses a lot of existing fitments such as like a micro spline freeha body um 30 millimeter bottom bracket standard uh it will fit a regular mountain bike uh and yeah it seems like a, a pretty nice drivetrain actually it's got some really cool features that have been developed for athletes like aaron Gwynn on the downhill circuit that's just sort of occurred to me that mm. like, if if the big two start to step away from mm-hmm. high-end mechanical groups mm-hmm. that does leave a space in the market for folks sure who want that sort of thing and it, yeah. is that what we're seeing here yeah i think so i think there's there's sort of like a almost a, a vacuum for this sort of product and uh yeah there's certainly competitors coming into the space and dare i say that trp is probably or tektro is probably one of the better placed ones to to fill that void uh simply because i mean they they're an enormous oe supplier for brakes that they've got those contracts in place they they've got the reputation for being able to supply quality trustworthy parts so for me it it makes sense that they're trying to get into this spot and from what i've read so far about this drive and i haven't used it yet but what i've read is it sounds like they've done a pretty good job with it so certainly one to watch for um and yeah i think prp i, I wouldn't be surprised if the tektro division is working on more affordable drivetrains as well 
that seem, it seems like something that they're, they're investing in. And uh, for me, that's quite exciting. There's a new KMC tra- chain as well. Uh, no, it was just like the one thing that caught my eye from the, the Taipei show was this, uh, actually it won an award at the show, if you want to place any value in that or whatever, but uh, it's a new KMC racing duo chain ring and 12-speed chain combination, which has this new unique uh, tooth profile from KFC that's said to better cradle um, the chain rollers uh, K- for the... K- KFC? We got we got some Kentucky Fried Chicken up in here. Um, pretty sure I said KMC, but I am a bit hungry, so I might have said KMC. <laughs> over over this not so great uh, Zoom connection, it certainly sounded like you said KFC to me. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, uh, except I kind of did. Uh, Continue. Well, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much all there is to it. There's like so little information on this at the moment. Um, there was some line that I seen in the uh. It, Linked to the award that the 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 new chainring and and combo or uh, chain combo won, it, it basically said that the if I read it out, the exceptional component engagement enables a five point two watt energy saving uh, ability to ride five percent farther mm. in the same time span. Um, none of which sounds all that. Um, uh, I'm going to come <laughs> out and say it. And KMC has had some. Uh, Overzealous claims in in years past that, with some of that their chains. claim doesn't <laughs> doesn't fill me with confidence that it was. Uh, I'm not sure if it was quoted, misquoted, or it wasn't. It wasn't from KMC. Um, so mm. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve judgment on that one for the moment. Those two yeah. things don't they don't make any sense anyway because <laughs> if it if it's if it's a five watt savings and also a five percent <laughs> savings. That means the entirety of the drag <laughs> across the entire rest of the system is 100 watts. Mm. Or you're only riding at 100 watts, right? Maybe maybe that's what they tested it at. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I'm, no, I'm no math guru, but pretty, pretty sure that one doesn't add up. As I said, I'm reserving judgment on this. Um, like, it, not. It's not even clear exactly... Is this road? Is it off road? What the the only reason actually I know it's a twelve speed chain is because I was able to zoom in on the on the photo provided and you can see twelve stamped on on the uh, the outer links there. So um, caught my eye, but uh, not not rushing out to buy one. There was there was other KMC news you were going to touch on though, Dave. Yeah the 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 chain I saw was uh, KMC have released a, a compatible chain eleven speed chain that's optimized around that new Shimano Link drive, which is the whole the whole technology base to the the new Shimano Qs that we discussed a few weeks ago, um, which is kind of that that nine, ten, and eleven speed entry level group sets that all run that eleven speed chain. And and KMC have created a, a chain that's specifically uh, optimized around the shift ramps and the the spacing of that. Uh, so that's probably a chain that we'll see a lot of uh, specification in years moving forward, I'd imagine. Yeah, the other the other interesting thing from Taipei Show, I mean, KS, the the company best known for their dropper seat post. They, if you've bought a mountain bike in the last few years, there's a high chance it might have come with a KS seat post. Uh, but they're they're getting into suspension forks, and they've they've got a gravel suspension fork, the GTC, which is forty mil of travel and. Uh, Seems to have some interesting high-end features, but uh, is aiming to hit a price point around the six hundred dollars US mark. So I think that's that's interesting for anyone that actually finds suspension 
uh, on gravel bikes interesting. Uh, and then last on the list is uh, wireless droppers uh, seem to be coming at a rapid pace. So uh, from what I saw from coverage from the Taipei Cycle Show, uh, KS, RST, TransX, and Xfusion are all brands that aim to release wireless droppers in the next short while. Uh, and all of those brands are, I guess, more known as sort of OE quite affordable brands so that suggests to me that wireless dropper technology is not going to be uh kept for the likes of rock shocks and magura for all that much longer not excited about that <laughs> yeah I, i've got i bought a reverb for my hardtail a reverb axis seat post and i truly believe it is the best dropper post on the market assuming you ignore what it weighs and what it costs Right, uh, but function wise, it's incredible. <laughs> and then the other benefit of it, like especially for a gravel bike, is where I'm thinking for this stuff. Wireless means you can actually remove the seat post and put in a rigid post, so you can kind of make your bike quite adaptable in that regard. Um, so I think that's that's a benefit to the wireless droppers that is is rarely acknowledged. I guess is if you've got a bike that you like to use for for various applications, it it does open you up to that. But yeah, understood. It's it's more batteries on bikes, that, and ba- bikes should really have fewer batteries. So, yeah, and just another thing to break. And they're also really expensive. So, I mean, if these if these newer options are less expensive, it's slightly more interesting to me. But yeah, you can get a pretty It'll good dropper these days for like yeah. you know two hundred bucks, and yep. these things are all three four times the the cost of that. So, mm. anyway. Ronan, you read something? Well, I was going to say something, but now I'm just going to say that every week I hear you talk about off-road stuff that you guys hate, <laughs> and I just, like, makes me more and more interested in mountain biking every time you say it. <laughs> I don't I know why you, you wouldn't you want know more it, batteries on, like, more batteries is better. It, no, more batteries is worse. <laughs> I know, but. It's way worse. It's way, I, the, the general rule is just that Ronan's going to like things that I don't like. So I think the fact that I don't like all these things makes you very interested in mountain bike technology, <laughs> which that's yeah, it's about right. Uh, moving us on. Moving on. Uh, we, we had some some other news out of Specialized this week. We're just going to touch on this one. Uh, the patent for or, or something. I think it was the patent for this bike popped up months ago. It was a very strange looking frame. Turns out it's the new Cirrus, uh, which is the how would you describe the Cirrus range? It's like uh it's uh like a recreational commuter flat bar yeah, bike. Yeah. Like yeah. ten years ago we would have called them hybrids. Yeah. But I they're not hybrids anymore. That doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but uh interesting interesting frame design because you get a basically what what they have done is they have like moved the rear triangle or extended the rear triangle halfway through the uh seat tube to make the whole thing flexi bendy that's the technical term by the way mm. yeah i like it uh, i mean the seat tube is interrupted the, yes. the seat tube doesn't connect through to the bottom bracket because that area you've you've got where the seat post goes and then that's all of a sudden interrupted and it's it's basically almost like the the uh, what would you call it like probably the seat stays uh effectively then taking over that position and and then connecting to the midway through the down tube so you've got still in a sense a triple triangle but it's it's a different orientation of triangles 
Um, this is I, this is one of those bikes that is like not great for podcast form. Um, <laughs> go look at a picture of it. Actually, even better. Yeah. Uh, go to Bicycle Pubes on Instagram. Uh, one of our favorite Instagram accounts uh, because he, I think it's a he, has uh, has drawn this with zerts on the inside and the inside of all the frame holes which anybody who was around in sort of the early Zertz era you know the sort of 2010 Roubaix launch kind of kind of zone uh i don't know you'll, you'll, you'll gain great appreciation for mm. the Zertz series uh, i think more Zertz the merrier to be perfectly honest yeah so so yeah i think this this bike is interesting uh part of the what's interesting to me is that uh rondo uh sort of brand best known for its gravel bikes they they recently released a new model called the rut which uses a very similar concept for the frame shaping uh so it'll be interesting to see how that goes with two similar bikes in the market and whether whether there's any sort of illegal implications there but uh but yeah it's i think it's an interesting design and i think moving forward it'll it's almost certain that Specialized are, are sort of playing with the concept in sort of a, a low-risk category. Uh, and you can imagine that if there are indeed legitimate performance benefits or comfort benefits here, that we'll probably see this frame shape adapted for other applications. Is it ask actually a low-risk category? I, I wonder what sales numbers are for these bikes versus like a Diverge. Because yeah, for our audience and for us, a Diverge is, is a much more prominent bicycle. But if you just walk into your average specialized shop, I bet they sell a lot of these things. I don't think this is a particularly low-risk category for them. No, so they must a, be pretty think, confident in it. I think historically, it's probably a high-volume category, but like sort of low-profit, I guess. Uh for me, I would imagine that these days that this category has been eroded greatly by e-bikes. Uh, and I wouldn't imagine it's as high volume as it used to be. I think it probably is still a high volume category in the US. But at least I'm thinking specifically for Australia, Specialized aren't a strong competitor in this space purely because of price. Uh, like that market's very price driven and this bike we're talking about a carbon fiber frame that's designed for a recreational rider uh it's normally typically priced out of where where most people buying this sort of bike look mm. ronan uh yeah but i haven't actually looked at this at all yet um but i'm you know when listening to you guys talking about the this category i'm you know i'm sort of naturally thinking is whatever benefit this is offering going to be um valuable to the customer in, in this in this price category looking for this type of bike are they you know is it something that you're going to sense when you when you get on the bike for a ride if, if that's the type of bike that you're after and you know if not is it you know is this purely something that makes the bike stand out look different and actually help sales in that way Probably. yeah i mean certainly yeah <laughs> unique unique aesthetics to go a long way to you know it's differentiation but it's uh at the same time yeah i think the goal here is is in theory frame comfort and that's certainly going to be uh, a good selling selling feature for this category uh and for many other categories so but yeah i think fundamentally it's not the sort of bike we'd normally talk about, but just because it's so radically different uh, and what it could mean for future bikes, uh, I think it is interesting. Needs more zerts. 
Uh, not interested until we get twice as many zerts as we currently have. Mm. I want to move on to our kind of bigger discussion today, which is actually based on a story that Ronan has written. It will be on the website probably before this podcast goes up, I would assume. I think uh, I think Joe is taking a look at it this afternoon. Well, Ronan, why don't, why don't you explain what the what the task was here? Uh, the task, much to my horror, was to investigate what would happen if all professional cyclists rode the exact same equipment. Um, there was that was that was as detailed as the brief got. I, I then um, have only myself to blame blame for going down countless rabbit holes and investigating if you did want to introduce what is sort of commonly known within the at least within motorsports as a spec series uh championship where i i at least thought it it existed in karting it turns out not so much but actually once you get into the single seater levels you have spec series where all the drivers have one chassis manufacturer to choose from one engine manufacturer one basically one type of car that they can race and then they can tweak it and all as as they see fit but uh, the idea is that there's a there's a sort of a level playing field there, and it hopefully accentuates raw talent, uh, uh, and that uh, that's the goal there. Um, so yeah, I started then wondering, well, if you wanted to standardize equipment in cycling, does that mean just the bike? Does that mean just the frame? Does that mean wheels? Does it mean clothing? Does it mean all the different aero accessories and marginal gains that we have nowadays? And what was the implications of standardizing such equipment and what way would you want to standardize would you want to go back to round steel frame round tube steel frame uh why can't i say that uh you know what i mean (laughs) steel frames with round tubes and 32 spoke tubular wheels or would we want to standardize everybody to some sort of modern aero bike from from the from today's peloton and you know how going one direction or the other might favor one type of rider over another and how it might impact professional cycling as a whole and turned into a bit of a mammoth basically took me two weeks to (laughs) to complete it uh i'm not even sure if i did complete it but i got it to a point where i just could not uh go back to it again (laughs) so what's there now is is all you're getting and and i opened the floor to questions no no i was i was trying to I mean, yeah, I haven't read it enough to even really understand what you cover, but it's... Kayla, you have read well, it. I, I think I have read it. I, I think it's an interesting question. I, not only have I read it, but I was—I think I was the one that assigned it to you. Uh, and, and that was, you know, that was purposeful. I thought that you were, you would, you would probably take it the most seriously, mostly because you would want to debunk it. <laughs> and so it turned out to, that turned out to be the case. Uh, you talked to some really interesting folks. You talked to Jack Aitken from uh, sort of the driving world. Um, I, I just think it's an interesting discussion, right? Because, well, let's go through some of the things that that you kind of that you kind of came out of it with, right? I think the biggest for me was was that it's basically impossible hmm. to actually create like a spec category of bike racing because one of the the sort of recurring themes that you kept coming back to was you can have the same, basically quote unquote, the same bike, same equipment. And if you have one rider who is 55 kilos and five foot two, 
and another rider who's 90 kilos and six foot two, like that's, it's a, you're, you're no longer in spec, right? Like you're no longer all riding the same thing. Uh, and that was, that was, I think one of the most interesting things to me was that, that, that this is while an interesting concept from a, you know, helping juniors get into the sport and all the other things that, that sort of in theory it could help with, it starts to break down really quickly. I think the way to overcome that would be to have everyone race like a 20 inch wheeled street bike, like a Cannondale hooligan comes to mind. <laughs> hooligan or hoonigan? Hooligan. Must yeah. Be hooligan. Um, yeah. So that would be one way. Cause that is a bike that allows you with, with its uh, six meter long seat post to uh, <laughs> adjust the fit to anyone. Um, mm, but see, see that, what, what you haven't realized is there the is, is what I hadn't realized until someone pointed out to me is that actually, the even if you went for that bike, the wheel size wouldn't change for the rider size. And so mm. the proportion of bike to rider, given that the wheels are the biggest part of the bike, is still significantly more for a smaller rider. Uh, and then you start getting into the rabbit holes that I find myself in and wondering, does is a smaller rider aided by moving to an, a round tube because they have less draggy tubes, or is a smaller rider hampered uh, by the same move? Or is a taller rider, you know, if you go the other way, is a taller rider aided by moving to aero tubes because they have more of those aero tubes and, and crosswinds and different yaw angles that could actually start getting some sort of a sail effect. And the the fact that they haven't got the round draggy tubes and they've got much more tube, that plays into their 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 favor also. Um there's a Kaylee, why did you let Ronan <laughs> open this Pandora's box? <laughs> well uh, one of the one of the other interesting things you you talked to Josh Portner and he was saying he was sort of like just chucking out this hypothesis that maybe uh effectively having something that was kind of like a spec bike in the 80s right because that, bikes that's were just what I was basically going to say, yeah. all identical maybe that was why in general we had slightly larger riders uh finding success in that era and also the small riders were generally more pigeonholed into just climbing uh, versus like you know there's some quite small riders who do well outside of of direct climbs these days uh, because I mean, but basically the the theory being that they were being uh, excessively harmed by the the bikes that they were riding, like they're you know heavier for for compared to body weight, the aero stuff you were just talking about. It's it's a re- it, like it is really a Pandora's box when you start to dig all the way into it. Uh, yeah, like I I think we had scheduled like a fifteen or twenty minute call with Josh just to sort of run this run, run these questions by him get his opinion on a couple of different things and, and have a few quotes from him for for the for the feature uh and it was about five minutes into the conversation that i think we both realized uh we he hadn't anticipated exactly how seriously i was i was taking this uh, <laughs> and uh i won't say he was stumped by any of the questions because he certainly uh provided plenty of um interesting and thought-provoking answers there uh but he certainly you know he moved to another room sat down got out the spreadsheet got out the calculator uh he, <laughs> he, he definitely had to go deeper than he was planning uh and yeah to to that point you know he he then sort of came to the conclusion that you might see a return to you know writers specializing in, in different disciplines and and being pigeonholed into 
disciplines and and sort of having their opportunities restricted. Uh, and the other thing that we sort of both agreed on was that actually, you know, if we want to know what spec series bike racing was would be like, at least in terms of aerodynamics and having heavy bikes, all we have to do is look at anything pre Champs Elysees, say nineteen eighty nine, because before that. Apart from Moser's R record or something like that, they're, they're, you know, for all intents and purposes, although the riders might have thought there was quite a lot of differences between their bikes back then, um, there really wasn't. You know, everybody was more or less on spec equipment. Uh, uh, you know, obviously you would have geometry differences and stuff like that, but in terms of aerodynamics, everybody was on the same bike. I, I think the more nostalgic uh, listeners out there might say that that was that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to go back to yeah. to that era. Uh, you'd be surprised because uh, admittedly a quick Twitter poll, uh, you've got all recent bias and, and all that, that, that uh, sort of creeps in there. But I did ask uh, on a Twitter poll, you know, what was your favorite era of, of bike racing or what was the most exciting era of bike racing uh, and give a few options. And 60% of the respondents said the, the, the the decade that we're living in now has been the most exciting. Uh, that Pogaccia might have a, a lot to do with that, but uh, and it's not exactly a a, a valid study or anything. But um, I certainly thought that uh, a lot of my following would have came back and said, you know, the eighties or seventies you know, or Merck's era or, or whatever. Well, Merck's era probably wasn't all that exciting, but I, I was expecting a different a different era. Yeah. How old is your Twitter following, Simon? <laughs> my Twitter account is older than you might think. Um, I, I my Twitter account okay. is old enough that I've got my own name. So, wow. <laughs> uh, I think. I, mean, I think. Yeah. Fundamentally, the the big issue here is that the way the entire sport of cycling is funded. Yes. Um, none of this is a reality. That 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 was <laughs> that that was kind of the the example in the article is just think about. If every professional rider had to ride one of the Shimano or Mavic neutral service bikes, that yeah. would be fine because everybody has a bike. They're all the same. They're all, you know, they're fine bikes for racing on or whatever. But Shimano, even with all of its might, could not replace all the sponsorship uh, revenue that the teams are getting from their current bike manufacturer deals. They're not just getting bikes, they're getting, you know, sometimes upwards of two million euro uh in addition to all the bikes that they're getting and shimano can't replace that for every every team uh and so you could end up bankrupting quite a few teams just by by going this way uh you've also got the fact just that there's so much infrastructure and um business and you know bike shops and if you want to go far enough there's that's one of the beauties about cycling but it's also one of the things that makes this impossible is that the bike that the Tour de France winner is riding in July, you can walk into a bike shop and buy the same bike. Um, and where spec series racing exists elsewhere, like Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2, and like the Volvo Great Ocean Race, and, and those, uh, at, at least, there is at least one sailing uh, race that has a spec series uh, also. You you don't have people walking and buying these things, uh, you know, if, from from yeah. local dealerships or whatever that 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 economy just doesn't exist. Yeah. You guys, are you familiar with Little Five Hundred? Uh, only from like from you've mentioned a couple of times. From Breaking Away, you still haven't seen Breaking Away. You have to you have to see Breaking Away. 
Mm, we're gonna watch yeah. it in Belgium next week. No, we're not. That's uh, <laughs> gonna be our. That's gonna be our Tuesday night. <laughs> Go buy some doubles and watch some Breaking Away. Uh, sitting around our our hotel in Belgium. So it, it, uh, Little Five is a. It's around a, a cinder track, and it's teams of four, and it is a spec bike. It's like literally everyone gets the same Schwinn with a coaster brake and flat pedals, and you can't really adjust anything i think you could maybe each team gets two bikes maybe you have like a tall one and a short one basically but basically you gotta like pick who the bike fits and who the bike doesn't fit and part of it is finding a team of people that are all similar size and if you actually want sort of an example of what it looks like that's what it looks like granted it's for one race a year it's a quite unique circumstance uh but it is kind of cool from that perspective like you end up with this situation where you know, you get local, you get kind of like cyclists, right? Joining and doing this thing. But you also just get like all the fraternities and sororities have a team. And a lot of people do that bike race. And it's the only bike race they'll ever do in their entire lives. They might become cycling fans. Uh, like I, I covered this race in was it 20, ooh, it was for Bella News, like 2017, 2018. Because um, a friend of mine had done it and I went back with him and uh i'm still in a chat group today with a bunch of those guys who are from this team most of whom don't ride all that much anymore if they do then maybe they run a whole bunch or they ride a little bit they're not like hardcore bike racers right uh and you know and that 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 event did make them into cyclists they were they maybe they started as runners they started in some other some other sport they they were just good athletes and they found cycling through this particular thing it didn't necessarily keep them around in the way that like we were kept around always some, some certainly were, uh, but it's, an int- it's still an interesting idea from that perspective, I think. And you did, you know, there's, there's some quotes in there from Chad Cheney, who's a guy actually local to me, um, that talks about like the, 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 the power of some sort of spec bike or cheap, consistently good bike for getting, new folks into the sport and i think that is the one area that is really worth discussing i don't think pros on identical bikes helps anything but i do think that yeah that 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 getting new riders on a bike that they just know is going to be good is a really interesting idea there i I will say that those in the the little five that have to ride the smaller bike that are that are that size you know what i what i understand now is that they have been cheated uh, so you know, I don't know. I don't know if you want to tell them that or not, but really, they never stood a chance. Anyway, uh, well, they're, <laughs> they're on flat pedals with a with a coaster brake. I don't. I don't think that's the, arrow was everything. The, the biggest problem. Arrow, I don't arrow think. was everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, what, what I was just going to say is, there's actually a heck of a lot more in the article. So just you know, listening to this segment does not cover it in its entirety. We I, there was actually a couple of things yeah. that came up that potentially have a, a a bit more opportunity than the likes of the uh jack aiken introduced me to balance of performance something that's used in world endurance car championship that maybe could work and the other thing that came up was some sort of a aero equipment restriction where i don't know something along the lines of if you won the tour de france last year you're not allowed anything deeper than a 30 mil rim for the following year and you're not allowed an aero frame and <laughs> that's funny <laughs> What, uh, not to keep staying on this topic, but random thought I just had was 
imagine if and in line with what kaylee was saying with making cycling more accessible imagine if there was like a retail value cap on the bikes pros could ride hmm you know like if if ever if every pro had to have a bike that retailed for 15 grand or under or something like that i'll make it way more fun that make make it like 3500 bucks (laughs) (laughs) That would be hilarious. I'm I'm, I mean, I'm just trying to think a, of a, a price point where where Pinarello could still remain in the world tour. <laughs> well, I mean, but like that would be a really interesting. I mean, that be, that's an interesting story, right? Like because that mm. is, if particularly if you put the number low enough, that's what we all did as amateurs, right? Where we were like, I mean, I, you know, sitting around in college, I have twenty seven dollars to my name. How do I make my my aluminum crit bike faster? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that's that's where we all got our start, because I think one of the primary points and then the real thing that that not that I really needed any convincing, but like the, the, the best argument against any of these spec bike things is the fact that tech is fun. Yeah. And the fact that doing these little upgrades and figuring out how to how to make your bike at whatever budget you're on, make your bike a little bit better is part mm-hmm. of the fun. And that's one of the things yeah. that Chad Cheney said. Uh and this story is that, you know, that that includes juniors because we had kind of posited like, okay, well, what if there's just spec bike for juniors because it would help kids get into the sport and whatever else. And he's like, nah, like 16-year-olds like tech just like the rest of us do, right? And they like that side of the sport. And it's equipment is such a huge part of cycling that taking that away, yeah. I think, is is to the detriment of the sport as a whole. Uh, yeah, like for me, the the actual thing that got me into cycling was just seeing some guy out riding a road bike with triangular handlebars on the front turned out to be time trial bars. That might explain a lot, but anyway, that, you know, so at a young age, tech and time trial was, had already gripped me. Um, but I, I think it comes back to the same thing, Dave, and that I, I didn't include that, you know, a retail cap within the article, but I think it comes back to the same thing. And actually, like it or not, you know, we, the customer, walking into their local bike shops, buying these bikes at ridiculous prices is the, you know, the, first of all, we're, we're indirectly funding the pros who are riding these bikes. And part of the reason they're so ridiculously priced is because, you know, if Team Sky or any of us, whatever they're called now, need 150 dogmas a year or whatever it might be, somebody has to pay for that. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, uh, you, you might just indirectly, uh have the same effect as as you know sort of canceling out all the manufacturers and all the innovation and, and marketing spend and sponsorship spend that they they bring to this board the reason i wanted to answer that well, here is because i am not doing that article <laughs> <laughs> go check out the story that ronan put together it's up on escapecollective.cc right now if you're not already a member sign up come on now you listen to this podcast all the time. You should definitely be a member of Escape Collective. So go do that. Kaylee, immediately. on that, uh, this podcast we give out for free. Mm. We, for us, it's kind of it's almost our promotional mechanism to get members to to help fund our mission. In a sense, yep. deeply, like, you know, we, it's the only reason we make it. We we love making it, and <laughs> I think it's uh, it serves a role to entertain and inform people, but at the same time i mean we don't have advertising on here because in a theory we are the one that holds the advertising spot of this podcast right so for people listening how much does it cost us to make each episode 
Uh, well, about an hour and a half of each of our time. We'll call it two hours of each of our time because there's some prep involved and then editing time. Uh, hard costs on each episode is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, five to seven hundred dollars. Okay. Which is really what? That's five memberships an episode. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So yeah, just uh, food for thought. If you are are listening and not a member, um, your membership does help make this podcast happen. Even if you consume nothing else, it makes this happen. Yeah. Are you accounting for overtime given that it's uh, almost 10.30 at night? <laughs> Right, right now, and Kelly uh, or Dave, I know it's right. Pretty in, this is you. cycling media. You'll get you'll get a branded bidden if you're lucky. <laughs> mm. that, I mean, that uh, that I should say that that number is just you know not even back of the napkin math, just like back of my forehead math. Uh, mm. But it's it's probably about that. If you if, if you sort of if you if you take into account all of the expenses involved in running a media company. And you mm-hmm. start to like divvy that out by hours and things like that. It's it adds up fast. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is a uh, like seven figure operation, Escape Collective, uh, mm-hmm. and and yeah, that's that's why we need a heck of a lot of you to sign up and be members because this is a seven figure operation, uh, and that's what it takes. Like we could have done it with three of us in the back of a shed, and it would not be the product that I think a lot of people are, were, were hoping for. Uh, we we kind of went big, right? And we, and we did that for a lot of reasons. One was to provide work for a lot of our friends and colleagues who no longer had it. Uh, but two is because I, I think there's sort of a minimum number of editors you need to, to have a, a truly viable product. Uh, yeah. If you're not going to be kind of a one-man show, you're not going to post mm-hmm. one thing a day or one thing every other day. If you're going to be a one-stop shop, we we needed to be this kind of scale, and that takes takes a lot of money. Uh, but yeah, if you haven't signed up yet, go do so. Uh, every single person counts. Like I'm I'm sitting here watching them tick in and essentially doing the math on how quickly we get to various targets, and then therefore how quickly we can add additional beats and like that's the thing that really motivates me right now is the more of you sign up the quicker we get to essentially like break even which we're not at yet uh and as soon the the sooner we get there the sooner we can start to expand and i'm excited about that before we wrap up today what is on your mind and over the head of your family uh what's been on my mind is that i i think i like power meters on mountain bikes as oh, of, I definitely like power meters and mountain bikes. As of recently. So I've tried them before. I've tried uh, pedals. I've tried uh, left-sided cranks. tried a couple of spiders. And all of them either had reliability issues or like in the case of the pedals, they increased the stack height too much. So I find myself smashing the pedals more often than I'd like to. Uh, all of them had negatives. And uh, not to... Not to go back to that, um, the people that bought me my Mercedes Benz, but uh, Shram's new power meter has kind of changed my mind on this. Where I think we're finally getting to a point where you can have a power meter on a mountain bike without any obvious uh, disadvantage other than price. Uh, and I think that is exciting because power meters on mountain bikes is really good information. And especially given that. The way you ride a mountain bike, it's a lot more uh, peaky, I guess, in terms of the the power output. Stochastic. Uh, yeah, you... What? <laughs> Stochastic. Is that what you call it? 
Mm. Yeah, like more up and down and less yeah, consistent. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, and I think that's, yeah, you don't really realize how much uh, you're exerting yourself or or that you need to factor that in when, you, when you've got a sustained climb. Uh, and I think it, it gives you some really valuable information and, uh, yeah, allows you to conserve yourself if you're, if you're riding mountain bikes for long distances. So I'm, I'm all for seeing power come to the mountain bike category in, in the way it has in the road. I, I didn't realize it, it wasn't there already. It wasn't there? <laughs> well, I, 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 mean, I didn't realize it wasn't that there. semi-available. Yeah. I, I, I guess wrongly assumed it was just at the same shitty level that road parameters are up. <laughs> no, like no. it's it's really been a fringe product. Like stages have probably had the best success in, in getting adoption. But for me, like stages is has some reliability issues that that have kept me from from using them on my mountain bike. And yeah, it, it just goes back to there just aren't many great options that you can just know that every time you get on your bike and you start to pedal, you're gonna have reliable data. Um and I'm I'm just keen to see that happening yeah and i think that that culturally mountain bike is more on the opposite end of the spectrum from power meters but i think there's actually Mm. a fair number of folks out there who who do fit within the power meter realm uh and ride a lot of mountain bikes there's a lot of a lot of cross-country riders out there who who like this sort of information and but still like when, when the when the predominant culture is uh this is no offense intended to our 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 former colleagues and good friends over at pink bike but like when that is the is the dominant culture within a space that's not really conducive to like a lot of power meter power meter tech nerdery right so it's yeah. not too surprising like you rock up to your average trailhead you're not going to see a lot of power meters the the, the rate no. of of power meter usage is probably a tenth of what it is compared to like your average road group ride yeah for example yeah yeah, even if you rock up to a cross country race these days, like a club level cross country yeah. race, you might only see a, a small handful of power meters in use. Uh, and I think the the other thing here is that I think they actually have a, a really important role moving forward in the enduro space. I think that could be quite quite an interesting one because enduro is is basically downhill racing with pedaling, uh, neutral neutralized climbs in between. Uh, and I think power meters could be used to to really ensure that they're they're saving the energy on those neutralized sections and i guess obviously improve their training in that also but uh or focus their training even but uh, so is it just improved accuracy that you think is the what what SRAM's bringing there that you like or what what is it do you think is actually it's for me it's the the no the no compromise so like there's like in the in the case of that xxsl spider-based chain ring the only downside other than price is like a 60, 60 ish gram penalty. Uh, and that's literally it. Otherwise you wouldn't know that the power meters on the bike, there's no real, no real other cost beyond that, that weight and, and price. Uh, whereas in the past, yeah, it's sort of the main thing was reliability. I would say like every time you'd get on your bike, it would often be something you'd have to fuss with that like, you know, might have a connectivity issue or, or maybe you've, because you're consistently washing a mountain bike, you might've had water ingress uh the other side of it is that um yeah they, some of them just weren't that robust to being hit against things uh and and yeah as as mentioned the pedals are are in perfect solution because they all they all have negatives in the way of like increased stack height which which on a mountain bike you know you stack increased stack height's not great in in um biomechanical sense but on a mountain bike it means that your ground clearance is reduced 
So you're more likely to actually um, hit the pedal when you're when you're climbing technical climbs and that type of thing. So, so yeah, for me, it's it's. I'm not going to say that SRAM are the first to create a off-road power meter that's actually worth having, but I think they're the first to do it in such a large scale that'll actually uh, see adoption rates change. Forks had mountain bike stuff for for a while. Like there's been they there's have. been there's been crank based stuff yes. for a while, and yeah. Yeah, it's this is not like a this is an iterative thing for sure. Yes. But uh, yeah. I think that every step pushes a little, pushes the, the sort of again like the cross country world in particular a little bit closer to to having these things be ubiquitous. Um, I still think stages made the biggest impact on the power meter market of, of anybody in the last ten years. Absolutely, right? they, they were the yeah. first ones to show up and be like, "Hey, there's a power meter for three hundred bucks," and that made a huge difference to yeah. to like on the roadside. And I think. Yeah, I, 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 it hasn't fully happened on the mountain bike side. Again, I think a lot of that's cultural, um, and just like the type of rider that that is attracted to mountain biking. Uh, but more availability is not a, not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Ronan, do you have something on your mind and over the head of your family? I, I do. Yes, since that conversation, I've had uh, training and racing with a parameter book on my mind because you used the word stochastic, and other than Matt Stevens, myself, and now you. Um, I can't think of anybody else on the planet who who has ever used that word. So um, you've 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 put that book where that where yeah, I first read that word. Um, you, you you put that book back back in my mind. The actual thing I was going to bring up here is what I'm going to call dumb gloves, um, because I believe at least now that we're in the year 2023. Uh, and with all the technology that we have, and as far as we have evolved as as a as a race, the fact that my glove still can't control my touchscreen phone um, is <laughs> highly, highly, highly frustrating. And I know I know there are some gloves available that have like a magic finger in them or whatever that works with touchscreen. But why is that just not all gloves? <laughs> so like ten years ago, I had a pair of gloves that yeah was specifically designed to work with touchscreen. Why do I not just have that in all my gloves? I, like I literally don't have a pair anymore that work, and and so when I'm out in the bike, if I need to, you know, skip a song even or whatever with my phone, I have to take my gloves off. Like, come on, it's twenty twenty three. It's a good point. I mean, yeah, like first iPhone was what two thousand and seven yep. release, mm-hmm. and a pretty quick adoption after that. So, yeah, uh, it's a very good point that why after fifteen years or more. Yeah, why aren't our gloves working with the technology that everyone has? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, on that note, are there are there any gloves that you've you've had that with a with a touch with a smartphone touch screen? The lit- little literally that actually works. Uh, literally, the only pair I've ever had was like a pair of North Face gloves that I got as a Christmas present from my sister in like 2010 when I first got an iPhone. Um, and, and I said I don't have any gloves. I still have those gloves somewhere, but the the magic thing has like worn off. It was like an a application uh, and it's long since gone. But um, yeah, it, it just struck me that I've got quite a few pairs of gloves from quite a few different uh, cycle clothing manufacturers and none of them come with this feature as a standard, uh, which, you know, it, it's kind of as necessary as grip is on a glove these days. <laughs> yeah. I have some from Sportful, I think they are. I'm pretty sure they're Sportful, uh, that have, like, little 
stuff in the fingers and they work great. Mm. Can you use your phone as well as if you were barehanded? I mean, no, because there's, you know, Mm. the the end of the glove is fatter. You haven't got the dexterity. Yeah, Yeah. the dexterity, but like, I don't need, I don't need to like type stuff. Mm. I just, yeah, I just need to like swipe open, turn the camera on, hit next in a song, whatever. Right. I I just need to stop putting on my phone to try and make it work. I mean, all, like, I think, I think all you have to do is just a little like electrical. You just need to put like a little bit of metal filament in between the two, right? So, can't be that difficult. I, actually, the, the the gloves I have that work the best for that are from Tracksmith, and they're running gloves. Uh, but they're also very thin, mm. so not not, and they're not like windproof or anything because they're running gloves. I actually, I cross country ski in them a fair amount when it's warm out, like warm being basically above freezing. Uh, yeah, and and they work. They're tight and they're uh, they're not clunky, and they work like second skin. Basically, they're great. Um, this is slightly borderline embarrassing to do in public because it's. I mean, but this is kind of what like Siri and equivalent assistants are for. Um, they can they can they can open the camera for you, um, and then you can use the side then, buttons on your phone. Then you have to talk to yourself. Yes. Yeah, I'm saying like it's you know it's it's probably something you want to do more on a solo mountain bike ride than in a road group, but uh, it is an option. Have you have you ever tried it with an Irish accent, Dave? <laughs> that doesn't work all that well. I'm going to try it later. Actually, I'll give it a go. We uh, we we had some problems with our TV and broadband subscription recently, and and they had to send a new uh, set top box, which came with new firmware updates. Uh, and a new remote, which is absolutely garbage. Like I only thought the previous one was poorly designed, but this new iteration is just like uh, the the only good parts from the previous design have now gone, uh, and what you're left with <laughs> is 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 a is a step back in time. Like the the only thing it's missing is like a remote control with with just two buttons that only do volume, and you have to like go to the TV <laughs> to change the channel. Anyway, I'm getting slightly <laughs> off topic. The the point I was going to make was that when the engineer came out to fix the the newly delivered but also newly broken uh, set top box because it like of course it did it failed within like forty eight hours. Um, I, I sort of knowing that it wasn't the engineer's problem or the engineer's job or whatever, I was just sort of asking this, and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's terrible." But what a lot of people don't realize is that you can talk to it. And I was like, "Let me stop you there. <laughs> I am not talking to my remote control." <laughs> To tell it which TV channel I want. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse. You, you know what? Um, the Wahoo Watch connects to my phone and solves the next song problem. Mm. The next mm. song problem isn't the biggest because yeah. most headphones will do it. The new Garmin 1040 also has that feature built into it where you can skip track, pause track, increase, decrease volume. Another thing that has a terrible touchscreen interface. Uh, touchscreen seems to work everywhere else except for the section that is supposed to fix the problem with the touchscreen on your phone. I, I don't know why, but I just can't get the skip track or the volume to to just work consistently on the on the 1040. It, it takes a lot of touching, especially when you're wearing gloves. Um, but yeah, there 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 are options at least for for song music control. I'm glad we spent time for this. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Kaylee, what's on your mind? Uh, what's on my mind is I am trying to do. I'm trying to live Dave Rome's best life, and I I thoroughly cleaned the whole drivetrain of my travel bike. Oh, mosaic. I thought you were going to say you went out and bought some nice torque wrenches. 
I did not do that. Uh, I would never. Uh, I have I have a finely tuned hand torque wrench, and I've never broken anything. So thank you very mm. much. No, I I I tore the drivetrain down uh, and mm. cleaned it all out, and it actually wasn't that bad because I had mostly been using like squirt on it, uh, so wax based, just the bottle that I had. So yeah, cleaned it all off, and I was <laughs> I went to try to apply. Uh, ceramic speed sent some of their was it the ufo drip stuff um they sent a box over recently and i was like oh sweet this comes highly recommended i want to keep this thing clean i'm headed to belgium on thursday went to try to put some on and it was about i was outside working in my backyard it was probably two or three degrees and sunny uh so not uncomfortable for me but obviously the metal parts were quite chilly <laughs> went to drip this lube on and like basically like one link at a time, right? Trying to do it very carefully and very Dave Rome like, and I, I dropped it on the top and it just froze immediately in like this sort of cone <laughs> off the top of the chain. And then I went and, and Dave, you, you then informed me that, uh, the operating temperature of this lube is like some very narrow and so, extremely far from what I was. So it's not as bad. So this, this is version two drip, wax which i which i really like as a product uh the first version their original um speed applicator lube had a very very narrow range it basically had to be applied at room temperature uh but this one i'm i'm just looked it up it's it's five to 35 degrees celsius is the operating temperature which is not it's not that narrow uh it's just you need to be indoors when it's yeah, you're in Durango in the middle of winter. So <laughs> it was probably close to five. It was probably three or four. And it definitely I would say the way not... that bottle froze or the way it didn't hit the chain, it's it's probably less than you thought it was. I bet the chain was colder. Yeah, it was yeah, in the shade prior. Well, yeah. Anyway, so. uh I, this is not something that had actually occurred to me that you have to mm. like I mean, obviously if you stop and think about it for two and a half seconds, you're like, Yeah, wax doesn't work in the cold. Uh, yeah. At least you can't apply it in the cold, but it was a good, uh, it was a good reminder that, uh, yeah, I need to put that on inside Yeah, <laughs> or else it's not going to do anything. Cause it just, it did like, it just didn't go into the links at all. Right. It would just, it just sat yes. on top. And if I, yeah. the second I start to pedal, it's all just going to fall off again. So that's not a very helpful, helpful situation. Yeah. So it might be this time of year. If you can only apply lubricant outside in the snow, it might be worth sticking with a wet loop rather than trying to use a wax loop. Uh, Dave, you did go. you say twenty plus degrees Celsius? Uh, so the current, the new stuff, the current stuff, the the UFO drip version two is is five to thirty five oh, degrees okay. Celsius. But the previous mm-hmm. one was twenty plus. The previous one was like there was a very narrow range. It was basically room temperature, mm. room temperature or warmer. From memory, um, I could be mistaken on that, but it was incredibly narrow range. It sounds yeah. anti Irish to me. Yeah, <laughs> twenty plus degrees. You have like. Two days per year, you can use it. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, you better you better have stuck up on those those chains then. So, mm. Well, the the new one five do a year's five, worth of chains on that one if day. The, if the new one works above five degrees Celsius, we'll get like I don't know ten days of the year where we can use it. So <laughs> that's that's improvement. Uh, so you, 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 so you your TV doesn't understand what you're saying, and you can't even apply a chain loop. What? And my fingers don't work. Why would you? Uh, anyway, that was that was equal parts PSA and uh, on my mind because because yeah PSA don't try to apply wax lube in the cold. There you go. Okay, I had a, uh, I had a different PSA. Do you want to hear it? What's what's your actual PSA, Dave? 
your saddle is a wear item. I think most people don't think about this and they think that a saddle is a forever product because it doesn't necessarily move uh, in the same way like a bearing or a chain or, or brakes do. Uh, but it is actually a wear item, and uh, it's not uncommon for uh, saddle saws or for um, a uh, unbalance-based injuries to appear based on saddle wear. So, yeah, it's the, there's two common forms of saddle wear that's shell-based wear, so where the shell loses its rigidity and its structure and actually starts to flex too much, and what then happens is you end up sagging into the saddle and often placing all of the pressure on the front area that's actually reinforced by the where the saddle rails join that's bad news uh the other one is is uh the the padding of the saddle that does wear out and that does collapse and it it normally collapses first on the on the side that you know most people are are slightly unbalanced on the saddle and it'll collapse on one side that you favor first so it'll end up exaggerating uh your any imbalances that you have so yeah, it's just a reminder that if your saddle is starting to feel like it's softer on one side or less padded on one side or it's flexy in the middle and it's like bottoming out onto the onto the seat post, then it's it's time for a new one. They they generally look wor- a bit worse for wear also when uh, at least the saddles I've seen <laughs> in that I'm like, yeah, you need a new saddle. Uh you can you can tell almost before mm-hmm. you even check it that it it's it's a well-worn saddle. So yeah, so visually, yeah, if you're if it's if it's looking uh, all tattered and 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 faded, then that's probably a sign that you've had your use out of it as well. But uh, but yeah, it's it's more than cosmetics as to replace it. That's the PSA. There you go. There's your PSA for the day, and that is that's gonna that's the end of this episode. I think we're gonna wrap up there. Uh, Ronan and I are head headed to Belgium this week so we'll have some special tech episodes from Flanders and Roubaix and maybe some recon and things like that next week uh, that may replace the regular geek warning episode I don't think we've decided yet probably depends on whether we can all connect or not uh, there may yeah. be a chance of having two separate episodes where um, another tech editor a part of the escape collective um He's quite new to the space, James Wong. Yeah, um, we've we've hired him. He's a rookie. We'll be training him up, Ronan and I. But uh, might be coming back off his time off, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe James and I will connect, and and yourself, Kaylee, and and Ronan will connect separately, and we can have a, a podcast battle where we we see whose episodes better. Well, I, I, I was I was going to share the operating temperature of Honey. Uh, which is something that I've just Googled. Uh, but if we're going to have a podcast battle next week. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm going to keep that nugget of information. <laughs> you want to keep that? Oh, that's not fair. Keeping people oh, on the hook like that. that got to save mm. that one. All right, I'm, I'm calling it a day. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week with one, possibly two, possibly three episodes. Nobody knows. But if you're subscribed, you'll get them all. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye.